So we're continuing with our foundations of the faith. In order to do that tonight, and let me tell you something, if I had a choice between being a college professor or being a salesman, I would choose salesman every time. I am not a good like uh, lecturer of you know facts and all that kind of stuff. I like to get pumped up. But I'm going to switch hats a little bit for just a minute and become an anthropologist. And we're going to talk a little bit about the different cultures, near I said, the different generations that exist in the United States of America today. So the first generation we have, this would be the generation of your great-grandparents, my grandparents, okay, or actually your great-grandparents, my parents. They would be called the traditionalists. And here they are up here. And you can see they were born prior to 1945. They experienced the Great Depression, World War II. And as a result, they're very patriotic, respectful, hardworking. They're respectful of authority. And they lived a very segregated life. So their generation is shaped by those defining moments. And those are their characteristics. The next generation is the baby boomers. And that would be me. We're the ones that came along immediately following World War II when the economy took off and there was no conflict. There was a small Korean conflict there, but right then it was awesome. However, we were defined because during our growing up years, and this was very pertinent to me, the Vietnam War occurred, the great civil rights movement occurred, which was you know, resulted in assassinations and tremendous protests and tremendous cultural upheaval. We are, and I've told you before, we're a failed generation. My generation, the baby boomers, we're the me generation. Our whole generation, completely different from my parents' generation, was focused on us. We're more educated than our parents. We became protesters and opinionated. We became very materialistic. A lot of us are workaholics, and as a result, there's a very high divorce rate in my generation. A materialistic, protesting, self-centered generation. That's my legacy to the world. Then we have my kids' generation, maybe your parents, maybe not quite your parents. That's Gen X, and Gen X is still being defined, all right? But we know the most integral part or influence on Gen X was the explosion of the computer age. Now the single most perhaps important event, because there were no really great upheavals, was the AIDS virus. And some of you may not remember, but when the AIDS virus came in, it was a devastating thing to the entire country. A lot of the Gen Xers grew up in single parent families. As a result, they're both very independent and they're very cynical. In general, they're less committed than were the generations before them, and they really like to have a life-work balance. They might have seen their parents' generation, my generation, where there was workaholics and high divorce rates and all that kind of stuff. So then that brings us to your generation, the millennial generation. Now, your generation is defined this way, okay? It was uh, primarily, the primary motivating factor of your generation is the Internet. The internet didn't exist before your generation. 
The defining event of your generation was 9-11. Even though some of you were very, very young, it changed the whole culture of America. You're characterized by diversity. You're characterized as being a very coddled generation because of 9-11. You're characterized as being very scheduled, very inclusive. You like fast rewards, instant feedback, and it's very important for you to be happy. So those are kind of the generational differences from a cultural standpoint. How about the generational differences from a spiritual standpoint? First, let's look at the traditionalists. There you see Great Depression, World War II. They, members, so church membership was at an all-time high under the traditionalists, okay? They didn't question anything because of World War II and the Depression. They accepted everything. They feared sin and they were very guilt-driven. That's my parents. Now, when you take the baby boomers, on the other hand, okay, because we were so educated, we became a little more hypocritical when we didn't accept but still tended to live out or, or try to put on the face of our parents' values. We were great questioners, and really the rise of individual Bible study in Western Christian culture did occur among Christians of my generation. Then the Gen Xers, my kids' generation, okay, here this is, okay, because they're less committed and they want a life-work balance, they tend to be very informal in their faith, okay, more accepting of other traditions, and they're not joiners. Then we come to you guys, the millennials. Here's what we have. You need feeding because you're scheduled and you've been more coddled, okay? You generally need to be fed. You have a postmodern theology. I'm going to come back to that, okay? In general, you believe that almost everything is okay as long as it doesn't affect you, and you're big into small groups. That's a huge part of your generation. Now, the most important thing I said right there was... The millennials have brought about the postmodern thinking. Postmodern thinking is the thinking that is in place of modernism. Postmodern thinking says this there is no absolutes, there is particularly no absolute truth. Everything is relative based on my culture, my circumstances, and what's going on. Also, my truth can be different from your truth. And as long as I can rationalize my truth, it's okay. So, with that background in mind, here's the question. And this is the most important question that you will ask once you become a Christian. Here it is. Are you ready? It's highly theological. Are you an adjective or are you a noun? Are you an adjective or are you a noun? Here's what an adjective is. It's a word or phrase that describes something. Sam is an old, fat, ugly, balding, gray-headed man. Now, there were several adjectives in there describing Sam. A noun, on the other hand, is a word or phrase 
that identifies something. Sam is an ugly, old, fat, balding, gray-headed man. Sam is a man. So the question is, what is your identifier? Are you a millennial Christian, or excuse me, a Christian millennial, or are you a millennial Christian? Which is the adjective? Which is the noun? Am I a Christian baby boomer, or am I a baby booming Christian? Which is the descriptive term, and which is the identifier? And what the most important question then becomes this. What's more important to you? Who you are or who God is? If the most important thing to you is who you are, you are then a Christian millennial. If the most important thing is who God is, are a millennial Christian. Your identifier is either self or God, which brings us to the way you determine what is your truth. At Camp Ozark, we say and we believe that the identifier is God. Therefore, the fifth foundation of the faith is this. The Bible is truth. Culture is not truth. Societal mores are not truth. Your specific circumstances are not truth. The Bible, the unfailing Word of God that is not subject to the different times, not subject to the different technology, not subject to different opinions, the unchanging, eternal Word of God is truth. Let's look at what God says about His own Word in the Bible. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, small w, and the Word was with God, large w, and the Word, large w, was God. In the beginning was the small w Word. That's the truth of the Scripture. The truth of the Scripture was with God in the beginning. And the truth of the Scripture was found in the big W, Jesus Christ. So the Scripture is found in the person and presence of Jesus Christ. So then we see in John 1.17 that he says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Sanctification, as opposed to salvation, sanctification is the process that God uses to make us more like Him. And it occurs after salvation. It's an ongoing thing that occurs through life. Sanctify The way we are sanctified is not by how we sing, not by where we go do a mission trip, not by the fact that you're a counselor at Camp Ozark. You are sanctified by the Word of God. Your Word is truth. So what then is the purpose of the Scriptures. The purpose of the Scriptures, as found in Romans 15.4, you can read it right there, 
For everything that was written was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In Romans 15.4, Paul gives us three specific purposes of the Scriptures. One is endurance. Now look, God knew that regardless of the age in which you lived, whether you lived at the moment Christ was alive, whether you lived in the Enlightenment age, whatever that was, whether you lived when the U.S. was formed, whether you lived in the 1800s, the 1900s, or the 2000s, that Christianity, the walk of the faithful, was not always going to be easy. And therefore, we use the Scriptures to endure, not to endure, this is awful, this is awful, but to endure the understanding that the world is not with us. So we use the Scripture to give us strength to endure as we run the race all the way to the end. But we also use the Scriptures because as we're enduring, as we're enduring, as we're experiencing challenge, the Scriptures, the truth of God, encourages us. And that's so important in the Word is to be encouraged by what God says and how God says it. And in doing that then, the third purpose of the Scripture is this, it gives us hope. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the things, if you're a, if you're a girl and you never get married, if you're a guy and you never get a job that you want, okay, and you're a pauper the rest of your life, if any of you get a horrible disease or if those around you get a horrible disease, if the circumstances of your life are the fact that you just can't buy a break, when you stay grounded in the Scriptures, you still have the opportunity for joy in your heart and peace in your soul because the Scriptures give us hope of not only what is to come, but the power of what is here. In 2 Timothy 3, I think it's 16 and 17, Paul tells Timothy this, all Scripture, stop, all Scripture. That means everything that is written in the Scriptures is God-breathed, everything. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good word, good, good work. Let's break that down. So, here's how we use the Bible. We know we're using it for endurance, encouragement, and hope. Now we know five other things we use the Bible for. First, teaching. How do you learn how you're supposed to live your life if you're not taught? What teaches you? The Bible. The Scriptures teach you. Now, here's where we got to be very careful. The great evangelist of our time, or the pastor at your church, or your small group leader, very important. But they're not the Bible. The great authors of our time, my favorite is Tim Keller, very important, but he's not the Bible. The truth of God is found in His Holy Word, the Scriptures. All those other things are important. But we learn who God is, who we are, and how we are to be 
through the teaching of the Scriptures. Second, we use the Scriptures, our knowledge of the Scriptures, for rebuking. What is rebuking? Rebuking is what God did to Satan, what Christ did to Satan when he was being tempted. He used Scriptures to rebuking. So what rebuking is, if there is someone outside the faith being guided by Satan that is tempting you or telling you or trying to twist the faith or whatever, by knowledge of the Scriptures and understanding of the truth, we are able to discern what is correct and what is not correct. That's the purpose of the Scriptures. Correcting, as opposed to rebuking, correcting is when we have another brother or sister in Christ who is straying from the truth. And either what they say or what they do is straying from the truth. And our knowledge of the truth, our knowledge of the Scripture, the Bible itself, allows us to correct that person in love and compassion, but with the absolute truth. And then training. What's the difference between training and teaching? All right, here's the deal. When I was playing basketball in high school, by the way, we won the state championship, so that's pretty good. When I was playing basketball in high school, okay, our coach would teach us. Teach us the form, the right form for a free throw shoot. I still remember what he taught me this day, you know, feet shoulder width apart, maybe right foot a little in front or right foot even, it doesn't matter. Knees bent, you always shoot with your legs and you always follow through like you're going to grab the basket. I can shoot that shot today a million times. That's training. Training is the repetition of your teaching. Training is putting what you read, putting what you're taught into action again and again and again and again. And then equipping, you use all of these things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, so that you're equipped for what? The good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. You with me so far? So there's five more additions. There's eight purposes of Scriptures that are delineated in the New Testament. Endurance, encouragement, and hope. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and equipping. Okay, those are the purposes of the truth. Now, what about the principles of the Scripture? The principle of Scripture, here's the first one right here. Every believer is responsible for receiving through the Holy Spirit the intent and meaning of the Scripture as it applies to his or her life. You are responsible for receiving the intent and meaning of the Scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit as applies to you right now in your life. Here's what happened. When Jesus was crucified, okay, we know some things happened, and we pass these over all the time, that signified it was the most important event in the history of mankind. First of all, the Bible tells us that the sun stopped shining. Now, you know what happened if the sun, it wasn't an eclipse. The sun stopped shining. The sun stopped shining. Do you know what would happen in science if the sun stopped shining? We're frozen. But to commemorate this massive event, the sun stopped shining. You say, oh, Sam, that's impossible. Hello, creator. The sun stopped shining. Then we know this. There was a massive earthquake. And in the massive earthquake, here's what happened. The stone was rolled away and all the saints came out and appeared to many people. You know, Elijah and Moses and all those guys, okay? And then here's what happened. 
The veil in the temple was torn in half. Now, why is that important? The veil in the temple of the Hebrews meant that behind the veil were the Levites, the priests, and they were the only ones that could give you the true Word of God. But when the veil of the curtain in the temple was ripped in half, it gave every one of us, the crucifixion of Christ gave every one of us direct access to God. And so every believer is responsible for discerning the truth and meaning of the Scripture as it applies to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, though, you've got to understand this. All Scripture must be discerned in light of the entirety of the Scripture. You can't just go into 2 Corinthians, pick out verse 4, and go, Aha! You have to understand who he was talking to, what were the circumstances, and what does it teach throughout the Bible about that particular subject? Third, here we go, the more we study and learn the Scriptures, the more the inadequacy of our own life is exposed. Now, here's where you got to... I'm warning you here. The closer you draw to God through the truth, the more you understand how really screwed up you are. The brighter the light shines the more warts are exposed. That's okay. Because if you don't have any self-awareness of those warts, God can't do anything to cleanse you. It's just like you're peeling an onion. Outer layer, next layer, next layer, next layer. God works on you throughout your whole life. And so the more you study the Scripture, the more those things are exposed. And finally this, all the truths of the Bible are applicable to all men. You can't pick and choose. Well, you know, in this circumstance, it's okay because they're a nice guy, and it doesn't matter if they're doing this, that, or the other. Uh-uh. And in my circumstance, well, you know, we'll do all truths of the Bible are applicable to all men. The organization of the Scriptures, okay? First of all, you have to understand three things. The central figure of the Bible is Jesus Christ. You got that? Old Testament and New Testament. The central theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is God's progressive, that's an important word, progressive revelation of Himself through a specific people in prelude to Christ. But the central theme of the Old Testament, make no bones about it, is Christ. The New Testament is the ultimate revolution of God in the person of Christ. After he's been revealing himself progressively throughout history to the Hebrew people, he says, this is who I am in my entirety, Jesus Christ. And that's found in four Gospels. Now you have to understand, we have three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One to the Hebrews, one to the Greeks, one to the Romans. And then John is written 80 years later, and what he does is he seeks to kind of fill in and he focuses on the deity of Christ. Okay? In the Old go back to the Old Testament, we have the historical, excuse me, we have the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Deuteronomy. Okay? We then have what in the Old Testament? The historical books. 
This is the story of the Hebrew people and God dealing with them. All the first and seconds and all that kind of stuff are in there. We then have the wisdom books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. And we then have the prophetic books. And what you need to do is read the prophetic books in conjunction with the historical books. Because God always, when he had a king or whether he had a judge or whatever, he had his word, the prophet, that was working alongside history. That's the Old Testament. New Testament is the four Gospels we talked about. Then we have the Acts of the Apostles. That's the story of the early church. Very important. Then we have all of Paul's letters, beginning with Romans, the great theological statement. Then we have the general letters, Hebrews, James, Peter, and all those kind of guys, 1st and 2nd John. And then we have Revelation. And that's a whole story by itself, okay? Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, there are, I think it's 10 or 11 extra books in your Bible that are called the Apocryphal Literature. And those all come between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's about a 400-year period, I think it is, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's when the Apocryphal books come in. Now, why aren't they in the Protestant Bible? I don't know, because they were on two different occasions. On two different occasions, the apocryphal books have been a part of the King James and its originations. At the moment, it's out. But here's the key. Those apocryphal books, if you're a Roman Catholic, they are not inconsistent with any book in the Protestant Bible. You understand that? So it's all truth. It's all God's Word. It's all Scripture. We just have some disagreements over that. Okay, that's pretty much it on the truth. We got the principles, we got the purpose, we got the organization. So here's what that means. Here's a conclusion. All beliefs, all actions, all decisions of all men, all Christians should be measured against the truth and teachings of the Bible. Foundation number five, the Bible is truth. So here's my question for you. Are you a Christian millennial or are you a millennial Christian? Thank you.